This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. What I'd like to talk about this evening is practice as, as a process, a process over time. It's also a momentary process, but I, I think this... I would like to talk about process over time because there's something instructive in being able to see the big picture, you know? Uh, being able to say to ourselves, okay, as you continue to practice, you start to see more and more about the workings of your own psychological, emotion, and mental life. And some of what you see isn't what you were hoping for. (laughs) 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 Or isn't exactly what you thought was happening. There's also a process, there's a term in Buddhism called chitta-bhavana, cultivation of consciousness. And in many ways, this is the primary catalyst within meditation practice that enables us to wake up. And and waking up is a dual process. In one part, it is um, discovering directly what it is to bring attention to the momentary experience that's flowing through each moment. There is the direct experience, the direct learning of mindfulness. What is it to meet each moment with an open awareness that can attend to it as it is without being preoccupied by what we'd like it to be? And the other part of the dual process is that as we engage in that, the karmic forces, the the habitual patterns of our life, you know, physical, behavioral, emotional, mental, they will come into play. And in fact, they, they will form a very interesting role. They will both seem disruptive and distracting and also informative. Huh? And, and to hold this in mind, to consider this conceptually, okay, that, that's part of what happens when you engage in awareness practice, when you engage in mindfulness practice when you start to look carefully and attend carefully to what's going on, this process will unfold. And it will unfold uniquely in one sense, you know, the unique characteristics of your personality, uh, of the attributes of your upbringing that will come into light. And then there's also this common grind, you know, the common grind of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Twelvefold Chain of Causation, 
the seven factors of awakening. You know, the, the, this all part of the common heritage of our human existence. And so from the side of the Dharma, there's almost a um, dispassionate, okay, this is the nature of human existence. You're born, you live, you die. No? Not that you like it, but that's how it is. No? And then there's this request of a deep, patient, kind, compassionate response to our human existence. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to be subject to uncertain forces that, that can come into our life that are beyond our control, that take away any assurance of happiness and, and can expose us to all sorts of uncertainties. Um, And where I'd like to start with this is, and there's a wonderful term in Buddhism uh, called pamoja. And um, it, it means, I think most literally it means delight in relinquishing the five hindrances. But I'd rather give it a more colorful expression, something like this. It, it's that point where our practice starts to shift from diligence, perseverance, discipline, to some, to enthusiasm, you know, a dedication that arises more from devotion. Devotion in that we're doing what we love. You know, that, that this, this is sort of kindling stirring up our heart's desire. I think many of us touch on something like it when we've... Usually it happens in the middle of a retreat, but it can happen in any kind of sitting. Where you sit and you become quite concentrated and the momentary experience becomes quite vivid. And you, you, there's a palpable shift in your state of mind and something releases and the vibrancy and vitality of the moment is palpable. And there's a, a rising appreciation, a rising delight. Um, and then of course usually we trick ourselves by, by becoming attached to it and wanting to own it and control it and and congratulating ourselves on how accomplished a meditator we are now in contrast to all the other people who are on retreat <laughs> but I want to read this poem um, this poem is written by um, a Palestinian Taha Muhammad Ali and um, the background gives you an 
it help, helps you appreciate what he's trying to get at in a very succinct way. So the village where he grew up was um, bulldozed as, as a retaliation for various things in the strife between Israel and Palestine. And all the olive trees in his village were bulldozed too. All the houses and all the, all the, the trees. And so he was dispossessed. He was a learned man, but he was dispossessed, and he moved to Jerusalem, and he sold trinkets to tourists. And uh, fortunately, he had some luminous spirit and, and some wonderful poetic muse that uh, lived through all of this and, and helped him sustain a way to savor and appreciate being alive, you know? And as I said, you know, sometimes we start to touch Pamoja when we have those moments of concentration. But really practice is asking for a more thoroughgoing appreciation and savoring. You know? the, the gift of being alive, that any moment that arises can actually be practiced with. And sometimes that's a great thing to ask yourself. Okay, how do I practice with this? You know? Especially those moments where it's like the last thing you think of. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, someone banged into the side of my car and... Uh, and I had that momentary, you know, startling experience. And then I thought, okay, how do you practice with this? <laughs> you know? That each and every experience we have, internal and external, offers itself up to be held in the light of awareness. It's its own teaching its own revelation and, and its own way of watching our being. Shall we contract in the ways that we're habituated to contract and push against? Or shall we open and relate and connect and communicate? So after all his trials and tribulations, Muhammad Ali wrote this poem. And um, ironically enough, it, it, um, it became well known in the poetry circles in Jerusalem and he became quite a well-known figure. But here's the poem. The poem's called Warning. It says, Lovers of hunting and beginners seeking your prey. Don't aim your rifles at my happiness. It's not worth the price of the bullet you'd waste on it. What seems to you so nimble and fine, like a fawn that flees every which way, like a partridge, isn't happiness. Trust me, my happiness bears no relation to happiness. Um, Pamoja 
is not about getting what you want. It's not about, I'm happy because things are complying with my wishes and my aversions, perhaps. It, it's more this capacity to um, meet the moment, to engage it, to let something in how it's engaged stay alive, to be enlivening. Yeah? We will inevitably go from birth to death. But in the meantime, we can enjoy the journey. Yeah. And at very, I would say, at the heart of our practice, this existential request to suffer less and be content more, this quality of appreciation, of savoring the moment, is, is a great ally. Last fall, um, I led a three-month retreat at San Francisco Zen Center's monastic place, Tassajara. And then I came back to the city and then I led another retreat. Sort of what you do when you're a, a meditation teacher. And, you know, the great thing about leading a retreat is that not only do you get to study yourself and your own thoughts and feelings and behaviors, you get to study five or fifty other people's, you know, roughly speaking. And And for me, in, in, watch, in, in both of these settings, so in one, one was, you know, the classic version of a retreat. You withdraw from the world. You don't come or go. You spend most of your day in silence. You meditate from four in the morning to nine at night. And then the other retreat in the city was most people were in their everyday life. Meditating in the morning, meditating in the evening but bringing awareness to the everyday activities of their life. And in both retreats, the same process, you know, the same request, you know, the request of citta bhavana, cultivating consciousness, the diligence, the patience, the directed effort of returning to the moment, returning to body, returning to breath. and meeting the arising of a karmic life with kindness, patience, and compassion. You know, maybe we think we came to practice through some intellectual intrigue, but for almost all of us underneath, we came because we were suffering. Yeah. One way or another, we were not happy. Um, to um, to bring these two ways of being into harmony, to let them resonate and to let them inform each other. This is, I would say, is, is part of the art of practice. You know, 
can your mindfulness be such that as the arising of your habitual ways of being, as they arise as they will, that they don't take away the awareness, that they don't send you off into a distraction, that they stay here, that they're met in this moment. You know, this is the request of practice. And as we start this request, you know, um, usually, indeed, there is a um, an urgency to what arises for us. You know, it's 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 helpful to remember that um, psychologically we are processing the experience that arises, endeavoring to have it be assimilated, make sense into the world of our description, you know, the world according to me. You know, it, it, it takes on a psychological significance and meaning, and we're processing that. And so when we sit down to meditate, when we sit down to practice mindfulness, we're interrupting that process. And this very interruption can be disturbing, can be agitating, can be unsettling. So, so part of the skillfulness is, as this comes in, that rather than see it as the enemy, rather than see it as some way we're not practicing correctly, is to be skillful with it. You know, in, in Anapanasati, the, the, the sutra on mindfulness of breathing, the first admonition is to connect to the breath, to connect to the breath in the body, and then use this as an ally in helping to bring a release. So often what I teach is allow in the inhale and release on the exhale. And as you do so, try to bring awareness to the abdomen, in particular to let the abdomen soften. And then to try to carry this through your day as as the events of your day unfold? Can you meet them with a soft abdomen? You know, which, is, which is a wonderful way of referencing because so often in the challenges, in the urgency, in the speed, in the haste, in the challenge of our day, we tighten. We're we're pushing against something, you know. We, we're trying to have something happen that isn't exactly just the unfolding of the moment. So reminding ourselves of finding a way to tune in to this 
softening, this releasing, this opening, this welcoming, allowing and releasing. Yeah. Not to say that that's, you know, the way to practice, but I would say there's something in that. Just, the, just as it comes up quite early in the Sutra on mindfulness of breathing. One of the first challenges we meet in awareness practice, in meditation practice, is we will come in contact with the restlessness, the agitation that arises in a human existence. And this is why I would say to, to, to hold in mind this notion that, okay, this is part of the program, you know. It's part of the program to get distracted. It's part of the program to, in a way, to struggle, you know. Your thoughts roam off and you bring them back. The unfinished issues of your emotional, psychological life arise up. You rerun that argument or you relive that unpleasant emotional experience. And often what we tend to do is is we we want to um, soothe it with a certain kind of calmness. Okay, but you need to be careful because that can start to be a kind of pushing down. And I would say more skillfully, this, not so much trying to anesthetize the discomfort in whatever way it's forming, but to meet it with compassion. And sometimes you can even quite literally say, this is difficult, this is painful. That kind of simple acknowledgement of having an unpleasant experience. And watching how it ripples through the body, the breath, the emotions, the psychology of your being. And this is a very informative experience. Because in doing this, we start to discover two things. We start to discover that we can practice with difficult states of being. And we also discover how. As we start to discover how to practice with them, we start to discover something other than reactiveness. Reactiveness either in a blatant state, you know, where we leap into an aversion, or even in a subtle state where we numb out, where we turn away, where we don't quite pay attention. And for most of us, this practice of patience, kindness, and compassion um, it's very valuable, you know? It's like when you lead a retreat where students are going deep, 
They have deep suffering. When you lead a retreat where people are staying busy, they have busy suffering. <laughs> and I don't mean to laugh at our suffering, but there's something... There's a way in which, you know, whatever set of situation, whatever set of conditions you set up for us, we will find something within it that's troublesome. Yeah? And, and to discover how to practice with it is an enormous, reassuring and encouraging experience. Pamoja. And as Taha Muhammad Ali says, well, the kind of happiness this brings, this is not your common garden happiness. It, it, it has a different quality to it. And as this quality starts to come into being, something of the diligence, something of the determined effort to, you know, do your practice because it's the right thing to do, it, it, it starts to uh, shift. Um, there's something humbling when we start to fully embrace our own suffering. There's something humbling when we start with a radical honesty to watch very carefully what goes on in our thoughts and feelings. You know, when you start to see how extraordinarily self-concerned we are. You know, when you, when you start to see how prone we are to reliving and replaying, you know, the same incident. When you start to see that, that we have, almost all of us have, repertoires of emotional responses. It's like, and we meet the world and we say, well, is this emotional response A or B or C or D? Because it's got to be one of those. Shall <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I be delighted, dismayed, frightened, <laughs> saddened? <laughs> then, <laughs> But when we create a grind of safety when we, that patience and compassion will do for us. Even though it's humbling, it can start to become something like intriguing. You know? It's like, huh, look at me now. Somebody just smacked into the side of my car. What am I going to do? My first thought was, well, it's his fault. He hit me. And then I got out, and, you know, and here's a person with a kind of worried look on their face, you know, startled in the middle of their Saturday afternoon grocery shopping. I mean, we only hit each other at about five or ten miles an hour, so it wasn't wasn't anything of drama, of, you know, catastrophic consequence. 
but to be able to meet another person and to not just be inside the cocoon of self-concern. To be able to be present enough in a moment to reconnect to what really matters. Dare I say, cars are just a metal box? Well, they are to me anyway, I know. Some people think of them as much more, but I don't. (laughs) Um, But this sense of intrigue and curiosity, and and then as this starts to ripen, it starts to undo the more subtle resistance we have to practice. No? It's like we, we all can watch ourselves, you know, especially anyone who's done I don't know, maybe we all we've all noticed it in sitting for thirty minutes, you know, but usually it becomes more prominent when you do a longer retreat, you know. You can watch some part of you that's quite dedicated. This is what I want to do, this is where I want to be, and then some other part is saying are we done yet? <laughs> Can I go home? <laughs> some images that keep coming to mind of some wonderful other place, other way of being, other experience that would be so terrific to have. As this curiosity starts to, th- th- that's stimulated by Pamoja this savoring of living the Dharma, the savoring of watching how practice illuminates and liberates. Something in us starts to unwind, starts to be undone. And then curiously, sometimes um, it brings up um, a deeper kind of distress. You think, well, great, now we're on the downward chute, you know, we'll just skate home from there. But actually sometimes it's it's more like... um, those deeper, more dangerous and reckless feelings that you couldn't possibly let yourself feel because they'd be too disruptive. Guess what? Sometimes that's when they choose to come forth. Um, And again, it's so helpful just acknowledge, okay, this is a process. This is a process of unfolding. Not that I know exactly how it's unfolding <laughs> or what's going to happen next, but like each unfolding offers itself as an opportunity for practice. Yeah. 
and, and part of the marvelous mystery of our practices that as these as the issues of our life arise for us um, they're painful you know they will challenge they will test our commitment to patience kindness and compassion yeah. and this is why it's so helpful to have a regular practice the 10,000 times you have studied what it is to release with the exhale. As it says in Anapanasati, calming the body, calming the mind. Yeah. Because this simple, fundamental practice is the steady thread that flows through, that stitches together you know, the word sutra is in suture. You know, it's the same, the thread that sews together. This steady thread of our practice of meeting each moment, meeting each moment and discovering and realizing and experiencing how to let it open, how to let it be itself, how to let what's within it be revealed. And as we do this, the three marks, the three characteristics, you know, that everything is in a state of flux. That existence is not static. It's, it's always moving from one state to another. It's always the interplay of causes and conditions. That even though we are extraordinarily bound to a sense of self-referencing, that that's our organizing principle, that that's our primary concern, that very self is not solid. That very self is a construct. And that the challenge for us is to study how extraordinarily important it is for us. And to study how that construct expresses itself in so many different ways. You know? That as, as we study that, as we engage that, as we see it come into play, There's something liberating in that. Yeah. And, and as we discover how to do that, and we discover the efficacy of doing that, and we're, we're drawn towards it. This deep, deep impulse to protect and sustain the self starts to loosen. 
And then the third characteristic, that the fundamental grind of being, if it's grasped and clung to, creates suffering. If it's met with the open light of awareness and seen for what it is, it's the direct expression of joy, of nirvana. You know, these are the three characteristics. Yeah. And they're not simply, you know, well, they're not in a way at all the product of our cognitive process. But I would say this cognitive process of considering, of reflecting, okay, this is a process. You know, this process of practicing. You know, there's something in that that can help help orientate us. And then as we move to this direct experiencing, um, the insight that arises is quite literally thoughtless. It is not the product of thought. And in its actualizing, in its realizing, it goes beyond thought. And then, being the people we are, the humans we are, we create some thoughts around it. And sometimes they're helpful thoughts. And sometimes they're not. You know? Pretty good measure is, if it's all about me, hmm, it's probably not so helpful. <laughs> if, if, if it's indicative of the nature of existence and the interplay and what it is to connect and be open, hmm, those can be helpful. You know? if, if the thoughts that arise are pointing us back towards experiencing, pointing us back towards practice and the request of practice, those are usually helpful. If they're judgmental, if they're reorganizing some structure of me, setting up some definite notion of right and wrong, they're usually not so helpful. Although not to say uh, Not to say such thoughts are utterly useless. They're not. We, we are on a journey. We are engaged in a process. In, in a way, no matter what you come up with, if you keep practicing with it, keep bringing it, holding it in the light of awareness, it'll turn into a teaching. Maybe the teaching will be to let go of that thought, but <laughs> even so, it'll be a teaching. Okay, I've been told to stop promptly at nine, so I want to read one more poem. This one's by Hafiz, um, which to my mind speaks of Pamoja. There is a wonderful game. There's a game we should play, and it goes like this. 
we hold hands, we look at each other's eyes, and we scan each other's face. Then I say, now tell me the difference you see between us. And you might respond, Hafiz, your nose is ten times bigger than mine. <laughs> and I would say, yes, my dear, almost ten times. But let's keep playing. Let's go deeper. Go deeper. For if we do, our spirits will embrace and interweave. Our union will be so glorious that even God will not be able to tell us apart. This is a wonderful game. We should play with everyone. And it goes like this. Okay. Thank you very much.